Hello and welcome to the Rationable Podcast, your weekly deep dive into how science and critical thinking make you immune to scams, fads and hoaxes. I am your host, Abhijit. Let's dig in. Hello, welcome back to the uh, Rationable Podcast. This week, we are going to try something different. Um, I'm starting a bit of a series on what is evidence. This is actually quite important because uh, a lot of people seem to have very big misconceptions about what evidence is and how to use it and what to believe and what to trust and what not to. So I thought I'd break it down and uh, kind of describe the different levels of evidence that we have. So, But the series is not going to be in any real grade of importance. I think I'll make a little, an extra episode after I finish the series and kind of put things into perspective and kind of stitch it all together. This series is particularly for describing what evidence is, what are the different grades of scientific evidence, and really break down what goes into each of them and what contexts they should be used in and how they can be used in arguments and debates. So without any further ado, let's jump into part one, randomized controlled trials. Now, randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, are one of the most important methods of testing medicines, diets, exercises, and much, much more. We use it on animals as well as humans to figure out if a thing that we're testing actually works. So basically, most of the things that apply to a clinical setting in regards to your health, say. Uh, mostly to do with our body and how our bodies react to, to certain things. So whether it's a it's a bacteria or a chemical or a food or a diet or exercise or anything of that sort. The results can be excellent forms of evidence if the study is conducted on a larger number of people over a relatively long period of time. And most importantly, it's great to know if you're debating a claim with someone that they start throwing clinical studies at you. This episode will tell you how to investigate what they're claiming and figure out for yourself if they're full of crap or not. I've mentioned RCTs in uh, several of my posts already. I've usually given a brief description of what one is, but since I can't go into detail, I thought I'd uh, give you a little bit more detail here. Of course, I'm oversimplifying the process, but it's to keep everything as simple and easy to understand as possible, especially for lay people like you and me. I link the sources um, that I have referred to throughout this episode in the show notes. So please either go to my website at berationable.com or uh, go into the podcast show notes and check them out there. First, a little story. Now, one can take a pretty long ride back through history to find some form of clinical trial or the other being tried out maybe even a millennia ago. I think it was even mentioned in the Bible, but let's not pretend that gives it any more credibility, right? The earliest record of a real-life RCT was back in the 1700s. The primary way of getting around the world 
was by ship at the time. I mean, I'm sure you've watched Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Unfortunately, on long voyages, many of the sailors were getting quite unwell and even dying. Their teeth were falling out, old wounds would reopen, and the joints would start swelling up painfully. This disease was called scurvy. James Lind, a young surgeon, looked into the matter. He had a hypothesis that acids could help the condition. He wasn't the first to think so, uh, since it was known that citrus fruits did help sailors with these symptoms. But it hadn't become widespread for some reason. So he decided to go along on a voyage. After about two months at sea, the sailors started to show symptoms of scurvy. He divided the 12 sailors into six groups of two each. By no means was this a big experiment, but it was very effective, as you'll get to see. They were all given the same diet, except with one difference. One group was given cider. The second got 25 drops of elixir of vitriol. Now, don't be fooled by that fancy name. It was actually diluted sulfuric acid. The third was vinegar, and the fourth got seawater, the fifth got two oranges and one lemon, and the final group got a spicy paste and a drink made with barley water. Now, the test ran for six days before the citrus fruits ran out. They were quite expensive at the time. Fortunately, the two sailors in the group with the oranges and the lemon had recovered almost to full strength by then. The only thing that had seen some benefit was the first group with cider, but only a bit. No one else got better except for the group with the oranges and the lemon. He published his work in what was called the Treaties of the Scurvy, but it was initially utterly ignored. However, over time, as more officials of the Navy saw his idea worked, lime juice became something more of a staple on Navy ships of the time, and scurvy rates dropped drastically among sailors. Now, how do you start an RCT? It all starts with an idea, a hypothesis. This is probably the easiest part and the place where most science begins. You see the world around you, you recognize trends and wonder if there's a connection, just like James Lind did. There have been some observations and associations that have been made with citrus fruits um, and that they helped with the symptoms of scurvy, but he wanted to figure it out for sure. Was it just a coincidence, a correlation, or was it causation? Is it just the lemon or anything sour? Or was it something else altogether? So, say there is a new medicine. A lab somewhere has had some promising findings in basic research on different chemicals they're looking for to fight a particular disease. They've just put the bacteria causing the illness into a petri dish and added some different chemicals to see what happens. And voila, it kills the bacteria. But that doesn't mean all that much in the big scheme of things. Is the chemical they used poisonous to other living things? Or is it well tolerated? Among which species? Does it have side effects? How will it get to the disease in the living subject to cure it? Just a few good questions are asked and you have the premise for a good experiment. Now, the first stage of this medicine to go through is animal trials. We do RCTs here too, but let's make things exciting and assume that the rats did well on the meds and it's time to see if it works on humans too. Now, just a quick note, just because a trial succeeded in mice or rats, it doesn't mean they'll have the same effect on humans. 
Now for the randomization. Let's take a sample of the population now. We select a bunch of people with this disease. The more we include, the better. Why? Because everyone's different. If you want to see if this medicine works on most people, we need to take, we need to take as many people as we can to see the trends more clearly. Now, these people should ideally be selected across races, genders, and ages. Of course, if the researcher wants to focus on a particular subset of the population, they need to mention it clearly in the paper. Now, this bunch of people get randomly assigned to two or more groups. For the sake of simplicity, in this case, let's just take two. Now, what does controlled mean? One group is called the control group. They get the placebo of some sort that looks almost identical to the actual medicine. Think of them as a baseline reading, right? The real medicine is given to the other group. Placebos can be sugar pills, flavored syrups, fake injections, sham surgeries, or any other intervention that only resembles the treatment being tested, but isn't meant to work. The point is to make the placebos identical to the treatment being tested, except it excludes all the active ingredients. So for example, if you're trying to test, say, a certain type of surgery, you take the control group, you put them under anesthetic, you cut them open, you stitch them back together again without doing anything else whatsoever, and treat them exactly as you would the people getting the actual surgery done. Similarly, if you want to test acupuncture, you use similar kinds of needles, but maybe not acupuncture needles, but some very fine needles, but not stick them into any of the acupuncture points as prescribed by the study of acupuncture, just so that it creates the same experience, but it doesn't actually do anything. Now, depending on the context of the study, the control group could also be given absolutely nothing. Another group could also be added in some other settings where a new drug is being compared to an already well-established medicine with well-documented results to see how much better it may fare or worse. There is another very important facet to randomized controlled trials, and that's called blinding. So there are different types of blinding, and you these get used in different contexts when trying to study different things. So whenever we run a test, it's essential that it is blinded. Otherwise, the biases of the candidates and the scientists could skew the results. Now, let's first sort out the terms. A blinded trial is when the candidates in the experiment don't know they're getting the real medicine or a placebo. But the scientists and the analysts do. In a double-blinded trial, neither the candidates nor those conducting the tests know who got the medicine and who got the placebo. But the analysts know. In a triple-blinded trial, this is where no one involved in the experiment knows who gets which medicine. Now, if you're wondering how they managed to carry that off, it isn't easy, of course. Uh, there are lots of serial numbers, there's a lot of documenting, and I won't go into the details right now, but you can probably look it up in some of the links that I am posting as and the added resources that I'm adding to this episode. Now, why do we do blinding? If you think about it, if the patients have a preconceived notion that a certain treatment will work, they may feel better due to the placebo effect or claim to feel better even if they aren't actually feeling so to show the drug in a better light if they are biased towards it. If the scientists conducting the study know which group gets the medicine and they have a bias towards the medication, 
they may record more positive results and fewer negative ones and thereby skew the whole thing. This may not even be a conscious effort, but it can happen subconsciously. That's how easy our brains are to fool. And that defeats the purpose of the RCT, which is to basically find the results without any influences from biases. There's an excellent example that I wrote about in my article on homeopathy on a study by Jacques Benveniste. Uh, I still don't know if I'm pronouncing his name well, um, but it illustrates this example quite well, where the, even the scientists didn't know that their biases were getting in the way of their studies. Now, the final aspect of an RCT is the analysis. So now the test has been conducted. The data is analyzed to check the results. A trial could be unblinded at this stage or the next one. Unblinding is exactly what it sounds like. Basically, we lift the veil and reveal which patient has been given which treatment. If the results of improvement are similar to placebo, we say the medicine is no more effective than a placebo. Beyond that, the effect can be measured. If the results are positive with minimal side effects, the chances are good that there will be further trials. And make no mistake, there will be many, many more trials, ranging in demographics, duration and number of patients, that will have to be conducted before the drug can hit the pharmacy shelves. Each effect and side effect has to be recorded meticulously and repeatedly so that doctors can compare the benefits to the risks to give their patients the best prescription possible. And even though RCTs are the bedrock of scientific investigations, especially into clinical settings, there are certain problems with it. It's not a perfect system, but it's quite indispensable as a part of the process in modern medicine and health. The problems arise when blinding isn't thorough, so biases have a tendency of creeping in, or if a paper doesn't get published if the results aren't in favor of the medicine. And this, is, this happens all the time. Unfortunately, negative results are actively being suppressed in many cases. There can also be problems in conflicts of interest, which basically means the people funding the study want the scientists to publish only a positive result regardless of the real findings. Another problem could be a manipulation of data to get a particular p-value, which is a p-value is a measure of statistical significance. This term is best explained by Stephen Novella, an academic clinical neurologist in Yale University School of Medicine and the host of Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and also the author of a book by the same name. He says... The primary method for determining significance is the p-value, a measure of the probability that the results obtained would deviate as much as they do or more from the null result if the null hypothesis were true. This is not the same as the probability that a hypothesis is false, but it is often treated that way. Also, studies often assign a cutoff for a significance that's usually the p-value of 0.05 and if the p-value is equal to or less than the cutoff the results are significant if not the study is negative and then he goes on to explain p-hacking this is the practice of tweaking the choices a researcher makes in terms of how to gather and analyze data in order to push the results over the magic line of significance many researchers admit to behavior that amounts to p-hacking, 
Further, when published results are analyzed, they tend to suspiciously cluster around the cutoff for statistical significance. Now, I know these terms are really complicated, but don't worry about it right now if you don't understand what's going on. B-hacking is a bit more of an advanced concept, which I think even I have trouble you know, grasping from time to time. But there are a couple of links that I'm giving uh, where Stephen Novella has explained these concepts quite well. Uh, you're welcome to go into it, give it a shot, and see what you can get out of it. How do you make the most of RCTs? RCTs are an indispensable tool, as I've said before, to discover the real effects of medicines, diets, and lots more. This is a basic form of preliminary evidence. Many of the flaws can be overcome if other scientists review the work, which is otherwise called peer review, and analyze the results to check for mistakes or shoddy calculations. Yet other scientists could try replicating the experiment to see if it works or not. But what does all this mean for you? Finding evidence for claims through RCTs can be a massive help in finding the facts. But it's not easy for most lay people to understand RCTs and what they imply. There's a lot of jargon thrown in, usually, and the statistical references can fly over your head if you're not well-versed with the subject. Worse yet, many clinical studies are stuck behind paywalls and are meant for academic purposes only. Then you'll have to rely on other sources, which I'll mention a little bit later. An excellent site for finding whole RCTs for free is PubMed. I'm sure you've heard of it. PubMed has become um, an excellent repository for a lot of studies across a wide range of fields. Over 29 million, actually, according to their About page. But just because it's on PubMed doesn't mean it's a well-designed study and that you can rely on it as evidence. That's why you need to be able to evaluate them for yourself to figure out if a study is legit or not. Here are a few things you can do to start off with. Consider this a noob's guide to figuring out RCTs. Ask the following questions of the randomized control trial you're reading through and see what the answers can tell you about it. First, how large was the study? The higher the number of participants, the more reliable and universally applicable a study is. Two, how long was the study conducted? Similar to the earlier point, the longer a study is done, the more information we have of the long-term effects of the experiment. For example, if it's a diet, we can measure metabolic impacts over the long term and how sustainable the diet is. Three, how many people left? Seeing if any of the participants left the experiment can also have hidden clues. It's not unusual for people to drop out of an experiment, but do researchers report why they left? If they do, this could be very important information about the side effects or any other effects, unintentional or unforeseen effects of what they're testing. If they don't mention it, something fishy could be going on. Number four, who participated? The population tested could also have ramifications on how relevant the study is to you. Was it conducted only on seasoned athletes or diabetics or males aged over 65 with a history of prostate cancer? Are any of these demographics similar to yours? If not, it's possible that the study isn't relevant for other groups. There is a chance there is a broader relevance, but that has to be clearly stated in the report. 
Number five, how were the groups split up? Understanding the methodology of the study can also prove vital. This will take a bit of training though, but it's worth delving into. I'll mention a few books you can read to help you out here in the uh, show notes. Six, what were the results and how were they interpreted? This is where the evidence becomes more explicit. Most of this is usually written in much clearer language and is relatively more easy to understand. But look out for terms like, quote, further research is required, close quote. This is the researchers clearly stating their study is still preliminary and needs more to be done to really understand how everything is working. Now here are a couple of pro tips. Pro tip one, if you can only find studies trying to evaluate the safety of a particular chemical, there is a good chance that the product is an alternative medicine. This is because many alternative and complementary meds, or otherwise called CAMs, try to go through the US Food and Drug Administration's guideline loophole that implies you can sell unproven treatments in the form of supplements provided you prove that they are safe for human consumption. Clever, right? Just prove their safety and you can sell whatever you want at whatever price you want. Pro tip two. Many people will possibly quote studies when you're in a discussion regarding a specific claim. Use what you've learned from this article to investigate it further. If you find the research was done on mice or earthworms or something, you can safely respond with, hmm, this is interesting, but since it's not on humans, nobody can use that as proof that your claim is valid. Or, in other words, you're full of shit. Noob tip. If you can't figure out what's going on, or if you're just starting out and need guidance, try and look for references to a study or a claim through a reliable source like science magazines, WHO websites, US and UK government websites, NASA, or even Wikipedia. Now, I'm going to be writing more about Wikipedia in the next article in the series, but until then, just know that it's a significant first step to figure out any topic. Plus, all the citations are also listed so you can dig deeper into a subject by checking those out. Some great websites and blogs you can also search on are skeptic.com, sciencebasedmedicine.org, quackwatch.org, skeptic.com, the Neurologica blog, and even snopes.com. Now for the conclusion. If you are still trying to figure out whether the claim is valid or not, RCTs are definitely useful. But it's just one tool in a toolbox of instruments that can help you dig deeper into a topic to understand the facts, which we will continue to discuss here on Rationable. Finding the facts is not an easy task. I have been trying to teach myself these tools for over a decade now, and I've picked them up from scientists and other science communicators and skeptics who use them regularly. I started at a point where only the abstract of a study was all I could understand but a lot of other pieces have fallen into place. And this is one of the reasons why Rationable exists. This is to show you that you don't have to be a scientist to understand science and to make claims about it. It's just that you need to understand the scientific process and what evidence means and how to use it to be able to further the cause for scientific thinking and critical thinking. So as I said, 
finding the truth is hard. And that's why so many people don't do it. So many of us believe a WhatsApp forward from a close relative or a friend or a sibling we respect, they become our trusted sources because we trust them. But are they objectively more reliable sources of information? No. For that matter, neither am I. I am just as biased as anyone else. I get my news from secondary and tertiary sources. Each and every one of us is biased, and we should understand that. We should know that about ourselves. And we naturally want to agree with the information that fits those biases and our belief systems. And we have to actively work against that instinct. And that's why I want you to fact check everything I say. The claims I make are not made from my expertise, but rather from all the sources I get them from. And those two are secondary sources most of the time. But I link you back to them in the article and in the recommended readings at the end of each post so that you can go back and check them out and check where they got their facts from. Randomized control trials, though, are an effort to minimize our biases. Making them blinded and subjecting them to peer review makes them even more reliable. James Lind fashioned his experiments based purely on common sense, and it worked. Now that has become a relatively crude experiment as we have continued to refine the process to make the results progressively more objective and free from bias and more ethical. Now I'm quite sure the process will continue to be refined to minimize the problems it faces now. Now before I go, I want to recommend a few books that you can read to educate yourself more on the scientific process and how it has been used over the years and through, throughout history and in modern science. These books are one, Bad Pharma, by Ben Goldacre, which talks about the problems that medical research is going through and the systemic problems it has and what we can do about it. Also try Trick or Treatment by Simon Singh and Edzard Ernst, which talks about the evolution of the randomized control trial process and meta-analyses and other things that we'll be talking about in the series and how it has been used to study the more popular forms of alternative medicine, such as homeopathy, acupuncture, and chiropractic. Also, if you want to go even further still, you should check out How to Read a Paper, The Basics of Evidence-Based Medicine by Trisha Greenhalgh. This is an actual textbook for medical professionals to brush up on their skills of reading scientific papers, and it's helped me tremendously. Please go check it out. Now you tell me, have I got something wrong? Did I miss a detail? Please let me know by visiting berationable.com and leaving me a comment. And if you enjoyed this content, please bookmark it, subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. Your support keeps Rationable going. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to read the blog version of this episode along with all the citations and references, or if you have any ideas, comments, or suggestions, please visit berationable.com. You've been listening to The Rationable Podcast. See you next week.